Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. Is that your school day? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999. If you're looking for science-based language, learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast absolutely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richart and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richard, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms and now helps teachers introduce the framework in their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces with an emphasis on practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part three, where we discuss the cultural force of time. Time, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Well, at least that's how Pink Floyd saw it. But Simon, I have to tell you that sometimes when I walk through a schoolyard, I wonder whether the students might be experiencing the Pink Floyd experience. Have you ever seen that going on? Uh, Absolutely. I think um, students and adults alike can all be dragged into that world all too easily when... um, when we find ourselves investing a lot of time and energy in things that probably don't really align with our core purposes and goals. Well, we are talking about uh, the book Cultures of Thinking, written by Ron Richard here, and we're currently looking at the cultural force of time. The chapter opens with an interesting subtitle, Learning to be its master rather than its victim. Now, I asked Ron Richard about that, and I suggested that in his travels he might have met a lot of victims. <laughs> and he, he, gave, he gave a slight chuckle to that. I suspect you may have uh, met quite a few as well, have you? Well, I chuckled myself, and uh, my chuckle derived from the fact that I suspect I'm one of those victims. <laughs> I think we're all a victim of time from time to time. Absolutely. And I'd, it's, it's a tough thing to find ways around. And that's the first thing to acknowledge in all of this. I think that's really important to acknowledge is it's a real concern. And and when we hear teachers um, saying things like, I don't have the time to build a culture of thinking because I've got to get through all of this content, or I've got reports to mark or parents to meet and uh, all sorts of things that have to be done. Let's let's first off acknowledge, yeah, that's a real and, and pressing concern and challenging. I don't have particularly a silver bullet um, to forever defeat that vampire. Um, but maybe during our conversation today, Colin, we can talk about some some strategies and some changes that people might be able to implement so they might become a little bit more of a master of time and less of a victim. Well, let me continue on with another word that seems to be uh, floating around a lot. I seem to get a lot of emails from colleagues saying that I must be very busy. Now, do you you think it might be better if I got emails suggesting that I might be very engaged or focused, something like that? I mean, what do you think busy actually means? Well, it would be wonderful if I received emails suggesting that you were thoroughly engaged. And I'm sure you are thoroughly engaged, not, not just busy. Um, I, I suspect that those two words aren't synonyms to start with. Um, I think there's something about the word busy, which implies that we're, that, again, we're a victim, that we're getting carried away with work. Whereas the word engaged or focused 
I think within that word suggests that it's learning which is at the core of what's happening. So busy work, engaged learning. And the problem is when we're just connected and engaged in busy work, if it's busy work we're doing, then I suspect that what we're doing won't always be directly informed by our core values. And that's something that's really important to, th to think about when we talk about this cultural force of time. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a moment, but um, just I just want to stick with the busy thing here for a minute. And, and this will relate to something that we're also going to talk about a little bit later in the conversation. But if I'm always really, really, really busy, I would suspect that I'm going to be pretty exhausted often as well, and perhaps even most of the time. What do you think about that? Absolutely. And if we're exhausted and if we as teachers are exhausted, then I think that that is ultimately counterproductive and utterly opposed, in fact, to building a culture of thinking. Because a culture of thinking is, by definition, a lively place where um, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of different thinking moves being performed by the learners. But if we're exhausted, then that's going to achieve the opposite effect of, of wanting to build a culture of thinking. Well, let's get into some practical stuff then. Ron Richard talks about uh, what he calls five key approaches and perspectives on time. Let's talk about a few of those. Recognizing time as a statement of your values, you've already flagged that. Richard asks the question, if someone were to follow you throughout the day, what would your allocation of time say about your priorities and values? Now, just thinking that through, if someone was to do that to me or to you or to anyone, this sounds like a very confronting question. How do you think we should address that? It's hugely confronting. Because as soon as we say that time is a statement of our values, then it communicates a message that time isn't just something that happens to us, but rather time is something that we're in charge of and we're making allocations. So th those teachers out there um, who feel like that they're a victim of time, that they've got to meet all of these requirements that are externally imposed, to suggest to them that they're actually choosing to become stressed that they're choosing to get caught up in all the minutiae and detail of that could be really confronting for them to hear. And I, and I think it is because I have uh, made that suggestion to teachers in the past and I, and I know that their reactions. It, it comes back again to a lot of the work that Stephen Covey has done. Covey talks about the necessity to make our own weather. <laughs> Rather than talk about it. <laughs> well, Exactly. Uh, you know, we, when we look outside and it's a rainy day, says Covey, it's really easy to feel rainy inside. Yes. Oh, that's that's very interesting. I like that. But then Covey argues when we feel rainy inside, and this is the confronting part, that's a choice we're making. We're choosing to feel rainy inside. We're being manipulated by the environment around us into that. So we can blame if we wish the environment around us. But ultimately, Covey argues it's still a choice that we make. And we can equally choose not to feel rainy inside, but actually to make our own weather and to feel sunny inside. Once we start understanding that, that between every stimulus, there is a space. And inside that space, we're free to choose our response. Then I think that starting point is the beginning of how we might move away from just being a victim of time and feeling that we can do nothing about it. Yeah, I think people might have become a little bit separated from the concept of choice because, as you say, you know, we get into this situation where we are busy all the time or people say, oh, I'm very busy. But 
well, we can choose to not be busy. Yeah. Can't we? If our core pedagogical value system is essentially that teaching is about presenting information and learning is the memorizing of that information, then I think that's what we'll choose to make time for. And it's, and it's really easy to blame things like the Board of Studies and the amount of material we've got to get through, because, yes, that does make it harder. It's very easy to be drawn into that rainy world where the teaching is about presenting information. But if we make a different choice, if, if we choose to believe that teaching is about inspiring others to learn and facilitating that learning by providing you know, a multiplicity of rich thinking opportunities, and if that becomes the core of who we are, then even in the face of rainy weather outside, then we can choose to make the time for that type of learning. I can just imagine a staff room situation where uh, there's a lot of hustle and bustle and someone comes up to you with a, a hurried request and you say to that teacher, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that right now because I'm choosing not to be busy. <laughs> That's right. I'm not sure how that would go down, but, but you, know, you should try it, Colin. Well, it's worth a try, I think. So learning to prioritise and always prioritising learning. I like that little uh, switch around there of the words. This suggests that it's easy to lose focus on the learning because of time constraints. What are some of the things that we can think about giving up in order to continue prioritizing learning and, and just create a bit more space? Okay. And, and this is where, I, and I think in this particular cultural force talking about time, I, I really see Ron Richard channeling a lot of Stephen Covey's thinking. Um, it's just, it's really interesting to see because the, those seven habits of highly effective people, and in this case, particularly the habit of put first things first, wasn't specifically designed by Covey to help make sense of the world of education. It was, it was designed to help make sense of living an effective life in general. But it's so readily transferable into the educational world. So to answer your question, you know, what can we give up or say no to in order to reprioritize learning? I think the most powerful thing, powerful thing we can talk about here is the concept of big rocks. And your listeners could very easily look that one up on the internet if, if they chose to do so. If you type in big rocks, there's a really fantastic demonstration that you can find on the internet of Covey actually working with somebody around this. And uh, it's a bit of a game, and the game goes like this. So he, he calls, he's, he's running a, a, a workshop. He calls one of the participants up to the stage. Um, and on the stage, there is a, there's a big glass jar. And then next to it, five or six big rocks, literally big rocks, and then, a, and then a, a tub full of small pebbles, small stones. Yeah. And Covey explains to the participant, right, your goal is to get all of those small stones and the big rocks into this glass jar so that none of it spills out over the top. The first thing that the participant does is tip, tips in all the pebbles into the glass jar first, so that fills it significantly up, and then tries to jam in the big rocks on top of the pebbles. <laughs> Without breaking the glass. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you don't want, certainly don't want that. And, and obviously it doesn't work because the, the big rocks stick, stick out over the top. Yeah. So then what Covey does is he facilitates another go at this. Why not put the big rocks in first? If we put the big rocks in first and place them at the bottom, then we pour the little pebbles in. Well, what happens is the little pebbles just fill in all the space between the big rocks really nicely um, so that everything fits into the jar. The, this is how the metaphor is effect effectively working. 
it's so easy for us to be dominated by the pebbles, by the little things, yeah. by the emails, um, the, the, the short conversations that happen as when we're in corridors, the little things that we have to do on a daily basis. If we let those things be put into the day first, we're never going to get to the big rocks. But if we put the big rocks in first, then all of the little stuff just fills in around those big rocks. And so then the question to ask is, well, what are our big rocks then? What yeah. are these, these <laughs> things that we're putting in first? What are the pebbles? And what are the pebbles? Well, I think the pebbles are just those, all the little things that happen in the world of education that take our time up so that we feel we haven't got time. But perhaps a big rock would be just the core notion from David Perkins, learning is the product of thinking. Perhaps that's a big rock. And how does that manifest itself? Well, we know that as teachers, we must provide rich thinking opportunities in our lessons if children are to develop understanding. That's a big rock. What we need to make sure is that we put those opportunities in first. We plan for them so that they definitely happen. They never spill out over the top of the jar. I'll tell you one of the things that I'd like to give up, or in fact that I have given up. I haven't used this regularly for many, many years now. The photocopier. Ah. <laughs> and why are you resisting this? Oh, it just seems to be the uh, the photocopier just seems to be that thing that seems to be working the hardest all day long in any in any school. And I know that that's, uh, well, that's controversial and some people might uh, sort of uh, think, oh, well, I have to get my photocopying done. And well, if you do, that's great. But uh, I would suggest that giving the photocopier a rest is probably a good idea. Yeah, completely. In terms of, of prioritising learning, I've heard that you like to use timers, like the ones that you might have on your fridge. Um, <laughs> this might seem a bit mechanical to some. What do you think? Is it a little bit old-fashioned or does it work well? I think it works well. I think there's, there can be this real tendency as teachers for us to set up a really great thinking opportunity. So perhaps we're using a routine like Connect, Extend, Challenge. So we show, we've taught them something, we, we show the students a, a connected resource and then we say, right, what connections do you make between this resource and your learning? What, when you look at this resource, how does it extend your thinking? And when you look at this resource, what do you find challenging about it? Okay, guys, can you think about that and then give me some feedback? Okay, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, and that's the pressures of time that make teachers feel that that sometimes needs to happen. Obviously, it's so important to, to allow thinking time. If we don't allow thinking time for children to engage in thinking, then it's it would be easy for them to receive a message that actually thinking isn't something we value in the classroom, even if we say it is. And that's where the timer can come in because we can say to them, okay, I'm going to give you three minutes to think about it. Actually, in my experience, children quite like it when you, when you're strangely specific. So, um, okay, guys, I'm going to give you three minutes and 12 seconds, um, to, to think about this. And then we actually time that. Then they know that we're really valuing the, the thinking. I guess you could also use that in the uh, in in the context of response time. In other words, you can't respond to me at least for three minutes. So we're yeah. going to have some silence now. I'm gonna I'm gonna present you with something, either a question or an idea or something that I would like you to respond to. But no one's allowed to say anything for three minutes or four minutes or something like that. Yeah. Great idea. And what that does is that just fosters an environment where considered responses are what's valued rather than knee-jerk ones. 
More from our discussion with Simon coming up. If you'd like to catch up on all of the episodes in this series, then check out the Learning Capacity archives. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. I think given the, uh, the fast pace and uh, coming back to that other word, busyness of schools, is probably a really good reason to think about using timers, uh, well, perhaps a little bit more frequently. I mean, that might help to create little punctuations of silent time in an otherwise perpetually busy and noisy day. I quite like that. Now, that might also relate to one of the other key approaches, which is investing in time to make time. In other words, I have to work at something to create time. Now, that might seem a little bit unusual because you, well, you can't really make time. There are only 24 hours in a day. And something, something I keep saying to my students when they're wishing that it was the weekend is I say, look, don't worry about it. The clock never ticks backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. hope not. It would yeah. be a, a, a terrifying world if it does. Well, it, it sounds a little bit Matrix-like, doesn't it? But um, investing time in, in time to make time I think what many people then do is they think, oh, great, i tell you what I'll do. I'll multitask. I'll do lots of things at the same time. Mm. How effective do you think that is? Is it really yeah. good for learning? Well, let me just first address some of what you said there that, that was really interesting. So we can't make time, uh, agreed, but what we talk about in cultures of thinking is that we can choose to redesignate time. And that's where we come back to what I was saying before about big rocks and making the best choices about how to use our time in alignment with our core values. But to return to your question about uh, about multitasking, I believe in the book, and, and I think Ron cites it in, in the book, this is Creating Cultures of Thinking, there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that when it comes to complex mental functioning, if children engaged in multitasking, then it just doesn't work. It, it, it creates the development of, of a much more shallow understanding and also understanding that's not so readily applied to new contexts. And so with that in mind, teachers everywhere perhaps would be shouting hooray, Colin, because (laughs) what we're saying is that, uh, well, allowing children access to social media whilst they're learning and then the divided attention that that creates is in fact likely to damage the learning process. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Teachers are excited, I'm sure. You know, what it is that we're after actually in opposed to the concept of multitasking. I mean, it it seems on one level, okay, multitasking, that would be effective, that would get more done. But actually, I think in cultures of thinking pedagogy, what we're interested in is going in the exact reverse direction. Rather than speeding up, actually, we're interested in slowing down. And there's a lot of wonderful work by some um, fantastic educators and uh, and mines out at Project Zero. Two of them that spring to mind immediately are Shari Tishman and Carrie James. And so much of their their careers are focused on this concept of, in a, in a culture of thinking, we create opportunities for children to slow down and look closely. The reverse of divided attention. Let's just be truly present in the moment of looking closely at this thing. Let's notice it in its full array of complexity before we then go on and do more thinking about it. Yeah, something I've often found uh, myself asking students when I sense that there's just too much going on is I I look at them and I say, I can see that your body is here, but are you here? Mm. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm just wondering, are they? is half of them still out in the yard? Is half of them in here? Or is a third of them over there and a quarter of them talking to that person over there? And then, of course, you've got that thing ringing in your pocket. Yeah. Um, so being present in the moment, I think, well, certainly resonates with me. Mm. In terms of um, efficiency, uh, Richard suggests that the better thing to maybe thinking about is how effective we are. So there's the efficiency effective thing. And I think <laughs> yes. uh, Covey talks about this as well. Can you give us a, uh, an example of how teachers might identify a situation where their efficiency, in other words, you know, I'm getting all this stuff done in a, in a really good amount of time, where their efficiency may not be all that effective? Mm. Well, Colin, as you know, I'm an English teacher. So let's, <laughs> let's take a risk here. Let's go, let's go mathematics. Whoa, okay. Let's just do it. <laughs> I'm with you. One of the um, best lessons I've ever seen was when a math teacher took the time to slow down, as we've just been talking about, and just focus on one question for a whole lesson. And the question was, and I'll try to re recall it as accurately as I can, the question was, why does x to the power of a multiplied by x to the power of b always equal x to the power of a plus b? That was the question. A whole lesson focused on that, but it was it's the first couple of words of the question that are really interesting. Why? Why does? Yeah. So that's one of those rules around indices that math teachers need to share with their students. But when I spoke to this particular math teacher afterwards, I said, well, you know, what was the what was your goal in, in here and focusing a whole lesson on why is that the case? He said this. He said, I've told the children in my class many, many, many times that x, uh, you know, x to the power of a times by x to the power of b is always equal to x to the power of a plus b, but yet they still get that wrong. Yeah. Even though I've told them over and over again, it doesn't stick. And his theory was it's, it's because it seems to be counterintuitive. Why would x to the power of a times by x to the power of b equal x to the power of a plus b? It's a times going to a plus. It doesn't actually make sense. Yeah. So they forget it. So what he did is he created a whole lesson where they actually tried to work out why that formula is true. And pretty simply, well, if we got two squared, that means two times two. And if we times it by two cubed, that's two times two times two. So what we've actually got is two times two times two times two times two, which is two to the power of five. But he created a lesson whereby they worked that out for themselves. I spoke with him a little while afterwards and um, he said, first signs are that they're not forgetting it now. I mean, I, 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 this was a while ago. So whether I hope that that's remained sticky understanding and it's still in place for his students. I guess what, what I'm saying is it would be probably some people might consider it to be more efficient just to tell them the formula. Yeah. But if they don't understand why the formula works, then maybe that's efficient but ineffective. Yeah, I suppose maybe, maybe in the long term we need to slow down so that we know that they really understand these ideas before we can move on. I suppose another way to think about that would be to say it would be very efficient if I spent the first five to ten minutes of every lesson running them through formula memorization drills. I could do <laughs> I could do that very efficiently. In other words, it would happen every maths lesson. It would happen mm. for the first ten minutes every maths lesson. I could use a timer, and that way I would actually know that I had spent exactly ten minutes, and I could be extremely <clears throat> efficient. And then at the end of the week or at the end of the term or, or at the end of whatever, I could say, all right, can you tell me the formulas? And they could probably repeat them. But would it really be that effective in terms of their understanding of the underlying mathematics? 
No, uh, it, and you know what? And if I was a student in that class, the other question I'd be asking is just why. <laughs> it sounds so dreadfully boring, doesn't it? Why is why is this relevant to me? And that's the other thing we've always got to remember. You know, yeah, how does my- this connect to the world to to the world around them? How is it life worthy? Uh, you're not suggesting that you would be asking why because you're an English teacher. Well, I ask why just because I'm Simon Brooks, I think. That's the, that's, that's the problem there. Sorry, there's just that little bit of uh, English maths uh, tussle going on there. Well, that may be somewhere in there. Let's talk about stress. Uh, Richard talks about managing energy rather than time and that thinking about managing your energy might be a better way to uh, uh, manage your stress rather than, rather than thinking about all the time that you don't have. And he also mm. suge- suggests that the presence of stress indicates the absence of of a culture of thinking. Mm. Now, I always try to remember that telling someone not to be stressed or calm down is probably the least effective thing that you could say to someone who is stressed. <laughs> mm. So the suggestion is um, it's probably a better idea to manage energy. Can you talk us through that a little bit? How do we manage the energy of our day? I remember a, a lesson a few years ago that I taught. I, w- I was teaching to a year 12 class the poetry of Peter Shinesky, who is a Polish-Australian poet. Um, and we'd, we'd learned about this particular poem. Uh, we'd spent a few lessons on it already. But I decided to set aside a whole lesson. This is with Year 12 students, by the way. And if any of your listeners are outside Australia and sort of trying to make sense of that, this is high-pressured, high-stakes, uh, high really, examinations very, very soon on the way, just looming. Yeah, it's the end game, isn't it? That's it. And um, so I decided to take a whole lesson. And in that lesson, I said, right, guys, we're going to take a whole hour. And what I want you to, I'm going to give you all a piece of paper and some, uh, and some colors. And I want you to create a visual representation of the poem. That's it. That's all I want you to do. <laughs> and to start with, I got some, the, some concerned looks on their faces as if to say, wow, well, is that the best use of time? Surely in this time you could be telling us lots of stuff that might be helpful for us in the examination. Um, but I went ahead and did it anyway because, you know, since when do we always listen to students' concerns on everything like that? Um, and something really interesting, really interesting happened. I put some music on and they st- I felt like they just started to be like the language you were using before, Colin. They felt like they were really present in the classroom. Yeah. There was this lovely feeling. The music was playing. They were connecting with, it sounds a bit new agey, I think, but they were connecting with the paper and with the colors and, and constructing this, the, these beautifully individualized visual reflections of the core ideas that they believed this poem was exploring. At the end of the lesson, I noticed that one of the students, and it was a young lady, was crying. So obviously I was very concerned. Um, and went over to, to speak to her and sort of asked, asked her why this was happening. And at this point, most of the other students had gone. And she said to me, she said, oh, it's just this, sir. It's that our days at school are so hectic, yeah. so busy, moving from place to place to place with competing priorities and expectations. The fact that you built this space where there wasn't lots of busyness happening, but there was some really rich thinking and slowing down thinking happening was almost too much for me to bear and that's why I cried isn't that amazing it's but, like you've let off a pressure relief valve that's right but in that classroom there was a power even though she was tearful it was good tearful 
there was a powerful energy. I felt it. It's probably what Mahai, Chiksamahai would call flow. Yes. You know, they, they were present in this moment and it was, they were thinking on, a, on the symbolic plane. They would, it was helping them develop their understanding of the true and central meaning of this poem. So in that context, it was about all about energy and not just about time. And it was so much more valuable than just get, getting carried away by the demands of time. Let me finish with this quote then, and then I'll ask you to comment on it. And uh, by the way, I, I love the name of the person who made who said this quote or who argues this point. Okay. It's, by, it's by Mike Schmoker. Okay. <laughs> he argues that poor performance of students is due to the fact that schools are dominated by time-consuming activities that only masquerade as instruction. Mm. Now... If we were to take this idea to our school leaders, is this a tough conversation topic that's the hot potato that's just too hot to touch? Tough, but essential, I think. And a, a great school leader would be horrified if they concluded that it was time-consuming activi activities that were at the core of what happens in their school and, and that those were masquerading as instruction. I think it's a great school leader. It's something that they'd really want to address. So I don't think it's too hot. I think it's necessarily hot. <laughs> okay. We'll go with the necessarily hot potato. Simon, it's been great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Colin. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast and educational neuroscience programs for language, learning and reading, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, you can visit ronrichart.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.